you know what, whatever. I've got some tortoises over here that are clonking. Can you hear it? No. No, it's good. So many, so many, so many damn books. Welcome to So Many Damn Books. I'm Christopher. I'm Drew. And we have Lindsay Ellis joining us in the damn Zoom library. Lindsay Ellis is a media critic, a Hugo finalist, a co-host of the web series It's Lit, and the podcast Musical Splainin', and the author of Axioms End. Welcome to Yay. the show. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thanks for I'm coming. I'm so happy to be on the only good podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I. Uh, that's how I think of it. Um, yeah, you, put, you should put that on your on your Twitter bio. The only good podcast, <laughs> Lindsay Ellis, Hugo finalist. She says so. I do want to say right up top that that um, this is only the second time that this has happened. That one of um, my clients is joining us on yeah. the, the yeah. show. Um, your day job creeping in. Yeah, and so I uh, I represent your literary interests. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's, there's a, a conflict, you might say, of interest. <laughs> you could say there's a conflict of interest, but I just you could say, say. So, you know, this is a, just a really special episode for everybody listening. Yes. Like it's a very special because like I, I've been listening to your podcast for a year. And so <laughs> uh, it, it, it's a, a it's a great uh, pleasure for me, too. Awesome. Thanks um, for being here. So, you being know, then. The um the shape of the show we start with um the drink. I am calling um the ampersand, um but make sure it's the actual. Yeah, it's it's the typographical mark. Yeah, it's not. The... It's like it's like it's unpronounceable. It's like the artist formerly known as Prince. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so it, the. This uh, this drink, I I want. I basically was trying to get just the color right. I wanted a nice color, and um, also wanted it to be non-alcoholic because not everything has to be alcoholic right now. And so this is uh, it's one ounce of vanilla syrup um, and six blackberries, and you muddle muddle up five of the blackberries with the vanilla syrup, and then um, you pour in three ounces of pineapple juice, and you shake that up, and you strain it over ice and pour in seltzer, and then you stand as far away from your drink as possible. (laughs) (laughs) And you throw, and you see if you create a really good asteroid splash. I think the straining uh, made enough of a mess for that. (laughs) That's true. true. I I am curious what uh, inspired the color, since you said you were going for a color. Um, Honestly, it was, I was just thinking of the like ink, ink blot of the cover. Oh, the cover of the book cover. Mm. <laughs> and also just like, it's like, I wanted, you know, I wanted the, the I don't know, blackberries look alien to me. And yeah, <laughs> especially when you, I don't know, the ones that I got are really weirdly long. Um, so, mm. <laughs> so I feel like they're many eyed and. Yeah, because I'd assumed, I'd assumed you'd gone for something like amber colored, uh, like a burnt caramel or something. Um, I this, thought this yeah. looked more alien. Cause like all, yeah, yeah. all alcohol is fun. Cause I, <laughs> yeah. no, I think, I think it's fair. Cause like, you know, if, if ampersand had shown up in like, I don't know, 1915, you totally would have joined like a temperance movement, temperance movement or whatever. So <laughs> it's on brand. This is what I'm saying. That's what I'm going for. That's, um, that's what I'm trying. Yeah. The brand is real. <laughs> so next up is what'd you buy? <laughs> 
yes. the celebration of capitalism, the mm-hmm. classic portion of the show. Um, Drew, do you want to start, or Lindsay, do you do you want to go? Um, Drew, you're welcome to start. Sure. I have uh, three things, but they're in two batches. One <laughs> okay. is I finally ordered uh, from Community Bookstore as they started reopening to do curbside pickup. I ordered uh, uh, Tochi Onyabuchi's Riot Baby, which I've been hearing so much about. Um, It's a novella out from Tor.com. Everybody just keeps talking about it is amazing, it's amazing, it's amazing. But I have managed to know nothing about it other than that a lot of people love it. And so I'm keeping myself totally in the dark as to what it's actually about. But I'm so stoked to read it now that I finally have it in my hands. Um, And then the other thing is two of tour the main tour imprint uh their essentials line i got joe walton's among others mm. and uh peter wells's blind sight and it's they're republishing this year and i think into next year maybe ongoing just classics from speculative fiction that have fallen out of print or that need a new edition um and it's cool to just get some books that I've never heard of, even though I'm somebody who loves reading sci-fi and fantasy, uh, and to fill in those gaps. Uh, among others is like a nexus of like fi- fantasy and sci-fi, like both she's in a sci-fi book club, and but she speaks to fairies or something in that book. Yeah. There, it, so far, it seems that there are a lot of books mentioned, which I'm excited about. Yeah, I, I love those sort of I love making texts. a reading list while you're reading. <laughs> uh, Lindsay? Uh, yeah, so um, I recently picked up uh, Network Effect by Martha Wells, which is, I think, like the fifth entry in the Murderbot Diaries, which is also from Tor.com Publishing, uh, but it's the first novel-length one, so it's a lot more uh, long, but... Um, <laughs> Honestly, like, I, I think that, like, if I had a problem with the earlier Murderbot entries, it was that it, it, they did tend to feel a little bit truncated being novellas, so uh, I'm enjoying the pace of this one more than previous entries. Um, and also, I just got uh, Middle Game from Sean and McGuire, <laughs> which nice. I'm only just now reading, but uh, yeah, just just uh, picked that one up. And uh, yeah, looking forward. Actually, it's kind of funny because uh, I this was something I didn't really know about it, but there's definitely like an undercurrent about of linguistics. And like, it's funny because like she like fairly early on name drops uh, Benjamin Sapir, who uh, co-created the Sapir Whorf hypothesis, which is what Arrival is partially based on. Mm. Uh, but I kind of went in the complete other direction. I like went full Chomsky, like full Regina Jorms, <laughs> uh, full <laughs> Regina George. I don't know what is wrong with me. Sorry. <laughs> this this mocktail is whew. <laughs> nice. Christopher, how about yeah, you? I was, um, I was totally won over by the cover art for uh, Charlie Kaufman's novel, Ant Kind. That um that just came out, um and I'm just gonna read this from their from the from the cover description because I can't tell if this makes me really want to read the book or if it makes me mad that I bought it. <laughs> um, uh, Thus begins a mind-boggling journey through the hilarious nightmarescape of a psyche as lushly Kafka-esque as it is atrophied by the oh, relentless no. <laughs> of Twitter. Oh no! Oh, oh no! Jeez. Oh no! Charlie Kaufman uh, wrote Eternal Sunshine, the only good movie, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Damn. 
Well, he's yeah. old now. It's a shame. <laughs> and apparently there's like a, a, a wash is, is the word Yeah, is cancel culture mentioned on the first page or only in the first <laughs> chapter? Um, I, you know, I don't know. I haven't opened it yet. Uh, it's also 750 pages, which oh, is... Oh, boy. It's... it's <laughs> You know, this is the problem with pre-ordering books is like it arrives and it's like, oh, it's uh, <laughs> much larger than I thought it would be. I mean, that is that is why I tend because obviously you can't really see like page count doesn't mean anything. So I, I always look at the audible length oh, to get an idea oh, for the man. length of a book. And like I said, like your average length of a book is Twilight. Uh, so I believe one Twilight is about, uh, I think, 12 or 13 hours. Let me check. So a 12 or 13 hour book you can assume is about 120,000 words. Oh, there you go. Oh. I, I like the Twilight. <laughs> yeah, that might my, my T. Yeah, it is 12 hours and 51. So it's about 13 hours long. So the TU, the Twilight unit of measurement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, my, I Yeah, my book is exactly one TU. So that means it's the perfect length. <laughs> <laughs> um, I got something else too. This book, um, Natural History by Carlos Fonseca. Um, and it's translated by Megan McDowell. And it's about a curator at a museum of natural history who's contacted by a fashion designer to do an animal kingdom exhibit. And then she dies. And then seven years later, he's like going back and going through the, the material that they never finished and decides to figure out what she was trying to put on display. Um, and it's really, it's supposed to be really interestingly put together. So cool. that sounds really fun. So that's, that's books we bought. We did it. I, let's talk about your incredible new novel, um, Axiom's End. Do you want to tell the people what it's about? <laughs> yeah, it's about a drug trip starring Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum. <laughs> and I'm Jonah Hill and Christopher is Channing Tatum. And every single conversation we have is like, he's just so happy to be here and I'm like, the world is ending. So, like, <laughs> even now, him saying it's incredible, I'm like, oh, God damn it. <laughs> you know how many qualifiers I'm going to have to add to that? Uh, <laughs> Creed is playing on my half of the drug trip. <laughs> he's got a mini Lambo. Yeah, that's right. That's how it feels. I'm read <laughs> yes. the hell out of this book. <laughs> um, that's not, that is not what the book's about. <laughs> In my in my head at this point it is because people yeah you know, I just don't know how to you know pretend like this is fun because it isn't it's miserable and like you know people be like are you so excited I'm like no I have to stay at home for like months surrounding my book coming out and it sucks I I think like I always also shy away from describing the plot because it sounds so terrible on paper like I just like I wouldn't read it if I if I hadn't written it like I see the word government and I'm like ugh pass. <laughs> like, uh, like, like no it's not like that well it's kind of like that but <laughs> well i think also it's just like conspiracy theory has gotten so toxic in the time since i like first conceived it and even just like in the last year and i'm trying to figure out how to tiptoe around this <laughs> yeah i understand that yeah um but i can uh, should i do it's it a dark erotic <laughs> fantasy <laughs> 
starring Alex Jones. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's and close. And the fish man from The Shape of Water. Go. <laughs> <laughs> And George W. Bush. That was what you, that was how you originally pitched it to me. You said that it was sort of, um, if I like the shape of water. Um, no, it was if you were disappointed in the shape of water. <laughs> <laughs> then you, that's right. Then I'd like this. Yeah, um, yeah. Because I, I think that was, that was kind of the reason. Because like I came up with this, uh, like, uh, I don't know, back in the 16th century, however long it was. And uh, I kind of trunked it and I only kind of resurrected it as the shape of water was coming out. Because I was like, oh, so this is what the kids are into. All right, <laughs> <laughs> let's give it a shot. Well, it's, um, I mean, I, one of my favorite ways that I've heard you describe it is um, it's it's a shape, the shape of water, but if Michael Bay directed it. Yeah. <laughs> <and> I- <laughs> I, I, that, I can dig that. I, I can sort of dig that. But basically, I mean. No, my, my favorite, my other favorite was Mary Doria Russell's Invader Zim. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Because that, that was a deep cut. Like 99% of people would be like, what? <laughs> but John Scalzi got it. He, that made him laugh. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I went for Stranger Things meets Arrival. When yeah. I was, when I was pitching it, which to me, I I'm have like, gotten so dragged for that. Thank you. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you. You didn't have to share that with everybody. That was you. Um, no, I was so getting dragged. Like whenever we did the screen cap, like half of the like uh, response, right. like it's, I don't know. Apparently, Stranger Things is more controversial than I realized because half of the responses were like, "Oh, I love Stranger Things," and the other half were like, "Fuck Stranger Things." <laughs> and, and I was like, "Wow, <laughs> this is like Hamilton." I didn't know there was such strong stranger things feels well i mean the 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 stranger things side of axioms end is that she is i would argue it's the tone yes so cora is a 21 year old college dropout she uh she's living at home and uh an alien crash lands in her backyard basically i mean and it's about how she ends up being the one vessel of translation that is yeah. given to the world. It, it kind of reminds me of a Simpsons episode, like how <laughs> the way Simpsons episodes, be- at least, you know, back in the day, like the way an episode of The Simpsons would begin would very rarely have to do with what the actual plot was. Because uh, yes. <laughs> like, it begins with all this, like, uh, um, you know, sort of discourse on like, you know, government transparency and her relationship to her dad, who is not based on Glenn Greenwald reviewers. He's going to come for me. <laughs> uh, Glenn Greenwald wasn't even famous back then. Uh. But, um, uh, but, but it kind of the ultimate shape of it and what the, what her arc and what the arc in general is, uh, is, is kind of very different from where it begins. Uh, but I, I guess I've kind of buried the shit out of that lead because I, I find that people respond to it more positively when they don't know where it's going. Yeah. But uh, I, I guess like we're here, so we're going to have to talk about that. Yes, we are. We're going to have Or to we talk. could continue to talk around it and I can just keep <laughs> shit Come up with for an alternate hour. versions of the book. <laughs> I have done that so many times. Like I've been rereading because we self-published a book called Awoken. Um, do you know about this, Christopher? Mm-hmm. Have you read it? Oh, you should. It's great. Um, <laughs> but uh, back in 2013, we were uh, um, we had this book review show uh, called Booze Your Own Adventure. And um, the 
part of the premise was like, okay, we're going to crowdsource a uh, a book and it's going to be like kind of a parody because this was like back when Fifty Shades of Grey was popular. But people wanted like a paranormal YA no- romance novel. And so uh, we basically uh, crowdsourced a book uh, and wrote it in two weeks with a bunch of ghostwriters that was basically Twilight with Cthulhu. And um, <laughs> I have had multiple people like slide into my DMs and be like, oh, so it's awoken but serious now, huh? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, ah, damn it. They figured it out. (laughs) All of my questions that I've got written down to you now sound so earnest. (laughs) I mean... You can ask them earnestly and I'll do what I always do, which is frustrate the hell out of you. So, uh, Well, I mean, okay, I'm going to just take um, how how has being a critic affected writing fiction for you? I feel like being a critic helps with the reevaluation phase and rewrites. It isn't very helpful with the actual creation of anything. It isn't very good at like... Uh, what they called at USC ideation, which because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think they knew what words meant. Um, but yeah, actually, like my first semester at USC, they had like a an idea coming up with class called ideation, um, which for those of you who don't know, ideation is usually used in conjunction with the word suicidal, as in suicidal ideation. Uh, so they changed the name of that class the following semester. But, um, <laughs> Uh, I, I I feel like it's like actually coming up with stuff is not very helpful, but like f- applying structure retroactively and, um, you know, pinpointing what motivation is and uh, like what character arcs and what themes are. I think it, it does help with that, but hmm. it certainly doesn't help you with prose. <laughs> <laughs> the structure of this book is it's very fun because as as we've been joking about for the last little while, the blurbs that are out there, the ways in which people talk about this book don't really tell you what it's about. <laughs> the plot takes some pretty wild turns and in ways that I, I'm reluctant to even mention just because I don't, I don't want to give it away. Like if you, I'm re- looking at the back of the galley right now and it's like, oh, okay, a whistleblower's daughter novel. <laughs> and you don't even really get... I'm like, that's, that's the title. The whistleblower's daughter. daughter. No, though, yeah. No, I mean, I think that's why, like, I've definitely seen some pushback because, like, I think people are, like, I guess there's two main things that people go into this thinking that they're going to get and they are not going to get it. And one is something that is like what you see on my channel, at least tone-wise, because I've seen a lot of people be like, uh, you know, if, if if you if, you know if you're expecting like a YouTuber book that's just you know more of the same like my channel but a book like you're gonna be disappointed like the tone is not the same at all. But the other is like if you read the galley and you think this is what you're gonna get, you're gonna <laughs> nope. <laughs> but so but what... I kind of appreciate that. I appreciate that people are like I'm just not. <laughs> just well, not it makes go me there. it makes me want to know what the writing process was like and sort of what. You mentioned that you had put this in a drawer for a while. What? Where did the idea come from? How did this all get started? I, I feel like the reason why people are being kind of coy about it, and we may as well just admit it, is because like, and I don't think anyone who watches my channel will be surprised by this, is it is low-key a Beauty and the Beast story. Like, shock. <laughs> um, and uh, I, it's not marketed like that for a lot of reasons. Uh, but, you know, I... I 
my main thrust was rather than like going head into that was because I kind of wanted to drop you know it is a hard sell <laughs> but I wanted to see if I could make it work for people who are not normally into that sort of thing um but uh I guess there was like twofold inspiration wise one was uh WikiLeaks. <laughs> like I could pretend like that's not true, but it's true. Right. Not Glenn Greenwald. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I'm just like he he's like come for me on Twitter a couple times, not because of this, but I'm just sort of like I'm almost excited because I'm like finally I might have a worthy nemesis. Like <laughs> I'm like I, I, I'm like I never had a worthy nemesis before. Finally, um, uh, but the other was uh, I was just scrolling through Tumblr one day in like, 2011, 2012. Um, like a couple years after I had come up with this initial like premise for like a, the grad school pitch class that I mentioned, which was just basically like, what if WikiLeaks found found out about the aliens? And that was just like the very, very quick blurb. So cool. like, yes, government has aliens and WikiLeaks finds out about it. And since WikiLeaks is kind of, you know, credible, um, people actually take it seriously, especially because of at the time, the cult of personality that Julian Assange had around him. Um, but then, like, uh, and like, I guess, again, to, like, draw the comparison to The Shape of Water, I feel like, because um, I, I remember it was a, a colleague uh, reblogged this photo from uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon that was of the gill man and uh, the, the female lead, I forget her name, um, kind of in, like, this dance pose. And that was what did it. Like, that was where I was just like, okay, I'm going to put these two things together. Um, but... I was so chicken shit about it <laughs> because <laughs> um, I, I thought because I was like I didn't want like the alien to be humanoid. I wanted him to be like as monstrous as he could be while still being a character and understandable and sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead, like a, the original version of it, you know, like they're just you know they're friends, like, <laughs> just keeping it cash, and uh, it didn't really have much of an emotional core to it, and I think that's why it didn't really resonate. And so whenever I rewrote it in uh, 2018, um, I was just like, "Fuck it, I'm going there." <laughs> so uh, I think that was the the major difference. And so I guess every subsequent rewrite since then has been like just pushing it into deeper and deeper, more uncomfortable territory. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but it's it's the beating heart of the book. I mean, the, yeah. their relationship, Ampersand and Cora, are just when they when they start to truly have these conversations, they're so. It's what made me fall in love with the book. Yeah, and that was not in there originally. Um, like I, I remember, uh, like my, I did have an agent again for the previous life of this book, and I think the the moment I realized like this version does not work was he said that the you know, real emotional core of the book was the relationship between Cora and the genome. Huh. And I was, that was where I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is not working. This is not doing what I want it to do. So that that was when I realized, like, I had to trunk it. This is just not, I'm not succeeding at the thing I am trying to accomplish. Mm. That's a very different book. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Again, I was very chicken shit. I was just like... I think I was like, it was, it was like, again, it was going to be like maybe book two or three where I kind of started to go there because I was like, you know, it's a hard sell, but I wanted it to be mainstream. So I like ease on into it. Mm. Um, so that's another reason why it's like marketed the way it is and structured the way it is. How did the 2007 setting help? Um, or or hinder as you wrote 
I mean, it helped. That was like, I, it grounded it because I think there's this thing in books in general where it's like, when it takes place kind of in the nebulous now, you're kind of stuck with what is assumed to be the mores that you're living in. Mm-hmm. Um, and like that almost kind of sucks the flavor out of it because you don't know when the reader is reading it. Um, so I was listening to Spotify one night and um, I think I had it like on a Tori Amos playlist and there's this two minute song on uh, I believe American Doll Posse called Yo George uh that came out in 2007 where she's just this sort of like despondent like oh god what has happened to our country um and i was like that's it like that is the mood i'm going for that it has to take place in 2007 because <laughs> 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 i don't think it's just sort of that's also like when i graduated college i also like i really liked the idea of you know and this is kind of a subtle thing but i liked the idea of like the economy crashing about a year earlier than it did in our world. And we know it was inevitable, but the people in this universe don't. So it's like you can kind of offset that blame, uh, which will, you know, be explored in later books with, you know, the economic anxiety of the time. And we all know where that goes. (laughs) Do you feel, I mean, this is getting a little bit ahead of where this book goes, but what is it like getting to thoroughly disrupt the timeline like that? It's really hard because our current time is so bad. <laughs> it's like, you know, because I'm not saying that 2007 was better, but we as Americans were kind of able to bury our heads in the sand more effectively. Because um, another big inspiration for this book was the big short, <laughs> the Adam McKay movie. Oh, sure. Um, like tonally and like just aesthetically. And uh, I, I kept thinking of this line that Steve Carell has early in the movie of like him being frustrated about how like everyone he walks by on the street is walking around like they're in a goddamn Inya video or something. And <laughs> like, you know, cause like, Bad things are happening, but, you know, we were sort of in this, like, post-9-11, like, trauma rabbit state. Right. Um, People were just kind of learning to live with the horror that was going on in the world. And now it's like, not only can you not ignore it, political decorum is gone. Like, it's just gone. Like, there was the pretense of it then, but now they're just completely, like, it would not make sense. Like, if the book took place now, like... I can't eat. Ugh, it would just it just hurts my head to think about. Like, <laughs> so like because so so it was kind of like taking it back to a time where there was a lot more like behind the scenes politicking and people trying to keep things under wraps and trying to like, you know, kick things down the road and let the Democrats deal with it and stuff <laughs> like that. <sighs> I'm curious about I mean, your channel is very, of course, movie centric, and your mm-hmm. um, you have your musical podcast. Um, I'm just curious if, for an adaptation, would you rather someone come up to you with a musical or a, or a would would Michael Bay do um, do this book? I would much first? rather Michael Bay have it. <laughs> like, that's that's how far away from musicals I want it to stay. Like, <laughs> you don't want Andrew Lloyd Webber coming through and making. I mean, okay. Oh my God. Lord Andy is allowed, but nobody else. <laughs> Love I, to see, yeah, Phantom of the Opera 2. Wait, okay, Phantom of the Opera 3. Yeah. <laughs> see, I, I, do, I do think that, um, you know, the, 
they have the stagecraft with with the, what they did with King Kong. Oh my god, like King Kong. Yeah. <laughs> or or we could just do that, but like on television with like CGI and stuff, and then we don't need. Pub- did you see King Kong? Uh, yes, I did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I saw King Kong. I had a uh, it, that was my birthday present. I had a very nice time. Really? Did you, yeah, I was uh I I also like that that one just went there. Like there's no Jacob in this <laughs> in this Twilight. Like they don't yeah. they don't bother with the Jack character, the the you know, the white male love interest. They're just like, "No, it's Kong." It's she, all about She loves that. We need to that. cut something in order Kong. to get it in in time, so yeah. No Let's one's make working. a subtext text. Yep. yep. No one's working harder in that, that musical than the dancers. Like they're all like. Oh yeah, they're trying so hard. I don't know. It also depends like which Anne Darrow you saw, because the one I saw was like playing to the cheap seats. Like <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's like tone it down about eight hundred notches. You can't when you've got a. You're playing off a computer. Yeah, you're robot. playing off of a giant yeah. puppet. Like, <laughs> um, I don't remember a single note from that musical. Like, <laughs> I remember the sets. I remember the acting. I don't remember any of the music. It was really bad. <laughs> the music was bad, uh, but everything else was, I don't know, fun. So speaking of adaptations or things that are difficult to ad- adapt, you brought us a, a, a book um, for book club, A Speaker for the Dead by Orson Scott Card. Um, the sequel to Ender's Game, although one of these sort of, he said he wanted to write this book first. And... Yeah, <laughs> I relate to that. <laughs> oh, yeah. T- talk about that. I've always thought that was interesting. Well, I, 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 the second book in this series was the one I always had in my head first. like, um, And it changed a lot. Because, uh, again, this is like I'm talking about a thing that doesn't come out until like next October at the soonest but um like this kind of fundamental dynamic between uh like what is the two characters in the first book becomes four characters in the second Mm. and like even though a lot of the details change the basic structure of it was always the same and the ending of it was always the same um so that i had in my mind first but i decided to like go all in on the first one because it needed setup because you know fundamentally the second one is about how society copes with the knowledge of like that first contact happened but the world didn't end so now what um which is not a thing you see very often in Mm -hmm. like you know first contact fiction it's either like you know there's an invasion and we beat them or they impart some knowledge (laughs) and then they leave um (laughs) oh yeah like contact yeah, exactly. Or it's, you know, E.T. or, you know, the Iron Giant, and either way they leave. Right. So uh, I feel like the only one that it is kind of like, well, now what is Transformers? Uh, and we see how well they handle that. So <laughs> <laughs> that, that you know, was just wide open, that, that niche. Um, but yeah, basically, like, the, the concept of, like, well, how, how does society cope with first contact if the world doesn't end? Uh, was interesting to me, but it needed setup, and that is kind of the function of the first one. Mm-hmm. So it's like I'm, mm. I kind of joke that if it feels like setup, it's because it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess so. That I mean, and that's kind of the true thing for Speaker for the Dead too. Is yeah, it's um, it's it's definitely like how the aftermath of a war and 
all the things that have come from it, I guess. Right. Because it's so different from Ender's Game, too. Oh, it's like, so different. It's almost like a completely different genre, yeah. um, arguably. Because they like kind of back retrofit. They almost kind of retrofit Ender's Game to be YA. Or like they tried to market it like that. But um, And then the Speaker for the Dead stars like this you know, beleaguered 30-something who's, like, kind of, like, an atheist priest and just, he's, like, 3,000, you know, he's been popping around for, like, 3,000 years and, like, he's basically an influencer. I also relate <laughs> to that. And <laughs> um, it's just, and it's just, like, like it's a lot less action-y. It's a lot more thoughtful, but I think it's a lot more interesting because of, like, the way it kind of ties in, like, this alien society and alien biology with almost like a mystery to unravel and how that like ties in with communication and like values and yeah I guess we don't need to get into card himself but like yeah I I just I, I always found it really like I guess indirectly very inspiring so I think that book inspired me like uh as a single work probably more than any other book wow the conversations thing is very interesting because Ender's Game is such a action-packed like it's it's all action it's a war novel and right. then speaker for the dead is so it's mainly conversations right and ender almost feels like a completely different character because like when ender's game ends he's like 13 right. he's, like he's not a person yet and like the the idea of like this you know 30 something who's been like around for like 3000 years but he's like lived for most of his life with this knowledge that he was basically a tool for, you know, genocide and um, like basically kind of doing the John Lennon thing of like trying to make amends for his violent past. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it is basically it, it is almost kind of like a completely different series. You could basically start with that because Ender is a completely different character from the one he is in the first book. Yeah, it, it really makes me see and understand Axiom's end differently, particularly in the way that you are so focused on the conversations that Cora and Ampersand had that are trying to just break down so much about nature and mm -hmm. and why we behave the way that we do. It's something I always love about first contact stories, the, those moments of two species trying to explain themselves to one another. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think about like, Ursula K. Le Guin did a bunch of these. The word for world is forest mm -hmm. comes immediately to mind. Um, but to to dance around the edge of the card question, you recently did a video that I really, I deeply appreciated because I've, I myself have been grappling with the question of how to apply the concept of the death of the author to mm -hmm. the authors who are around and on Twitter right now saying stupid, stupid right. shit. Yeah, there's a lot of them. There's not just the famous ones. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, it, it costs zero dollars to not say anything, <laughs> <laughs> Joanne. Yeah, but this clearly means a lot to you, so go off. Books like yours and even Speaker for the Dead that prompt us to have conversations and prompt us as readers to think about these big questions of humanity, it feels, I don't know, it feels like the, the best thing that science fiction can do. And I feel like maybe science fiction more than any other genre is disposed to allow us to dispose of the author if they are bad while still taking the fundamental core questions <clears throat> that their work can propose. 
I think it depends on what you're trying to do because a lot of and you know there there was a I've been dealing with a lot of dum dums in the last few days uh, that are were not understanding my point you know because a lot of people were saying like how can I consume her work ethically while um, not uh, supporting her mm-hmm. and I'm like you can't like if, right. you know it's like you can consume her work we do eth- we do mildly unethical things every day but if you really want to de-platform her you can't like you can't promote herself um but i i think it is kind of a personal thing and i think a lot of like and that's sort of my problem with bart and death of the author in general is i think people are trying to like remove like emotionality and subjectivity from the equation whenever we talk about art and how we react to it and i just don't think that's realistic i think that like um, if you know something about an author, that is going to color your reading and it mm-hmm. will color your emotional reaction to it. And I just don't believe people that say, like, I have completely cut out, like, anything, uh, re- like, related to the author and what they say. Um, it's a I, fantasy. I mean, I, it's a fantasy. Yeah. They want to be able to do that. It's like, oh, yeah, I'd love yeah, to have a switchboard right. that's like, yes, I don't yes. care about the pandemic right now. I'm just going to, like, no, that's not how it works. It reminds me of almost kind of like economic theory, like, uh, you know, supply side economics mm-hmm. where because I remember like this is why I was so bad at economics when I was in high school uh, because I didn't understand why we were learning this theory if it never applies in real life like one to one and my teacher kept trying to explain like look it's a theory like yes it's way more complicated than this but like this is just a theory and like I just didn't understand why we were learning it and it's like I get it now but I kind of feel like death of the author is the same way it's a theory and you can talk about it in like theory but like in in praxis it's uh it, it you know what you know about the author is probably going to leak into your reading of a text whether you realize it or not right as are your biases as are is your worldview like everything like that is why this idea of objective art criticism is so absurd to me it's just ridiculous <laughs> I flipped for Ender's Game. I read it at the perfect age. I was like 13, I think, when I read it. And I just just loved it. I thought it was the absolute best thing and like ran to the library to get the next one. I was so excited for the series. (laughs) And then... um, Womp womp. Exactly. (laughs) I'm reading it and I like, you know, it's as a 13-year-old, like, uh, at some point they're going to start playing the really cool floaty game, right? Like that's going to come back. It's yeah. such a good idea. Like why would he just throw that away? Yeah. Cause I was in my like twenties when I read all of it and cause like Ender's game, I was like, well, this is fine. And then, so speaker was the one where I'm like, Ooh, you know, now we're finally getting somewhere. <laughs> um, cause like in this context, I, I think, uh, like speaking from experience, um, one of the hardest thing you can do um, is have alien characters that are, like, extremely alien and difficult to understand while also being, like, you know, sympathetic and characters in their own right. And I, like, Speaker for the Dead is one of the only books I can think about that does that really well. Mm. Um, because, like, you do kind of feel for them and you do kind of understand, like, their motivation and their perspective, but, you know, they also are coming from, like, this really non-human point of view um and like 
there like it's it's misunderstanding on both sides and like you know the only thing that can cure this is like kind of solving the mystery and figuring it out and so i it's it's not the only one that's done that but it is kind of like unique in in doing it well and really seamlessly integrating that into the narrative Mm -hmm. so much that drives this is just like the inability to understand another culture and like right, to make yeah. that work as like an actual plot uh, is a uh, is is an interesting trick. Yeah, Card does it better than I do. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't gonna front. He might be a horrible bigot, but he's better at that, which is weird, <laughs> wild. Yeah, I mean, it's it just doesn't it doesn't add up. That it doesn't match. Yeah, I know. Like, <laughs> yeah. it was like for, I think for like there was a solid year where people were tell were warning me on Twitter. I'm like, that can't be right. You guys are overreacting. <laughs> like, no, it's it's that bad. He he, no. he is that much of a homophobe. Yeah. Well, I think also I was like a little um, skeptical because one of his earliest and most fiercest critics was like almost on this conspiracy theory train um saying that like ender's game was meant to be an allegory for hitler and ender was hitler and it's uh genocide apologia it's basically saying that the holocaust had to happen and like the only way that um orson scott card could have possibly written these things about the character of ender was if he knew this this and this about hitler and it was just like and this was like a a legit colleague like they had met at the hugo multiple times like wow. it was just like c- completely coconuts and like <laughs> I, I you know I was just like if this is what his detractors sound like I think maybe I don't believe them <laughs> so it took me a little while to really come to terms with the fact that like both of these things can be true like he can have like these detractors that are just like completely detached from reality while also having detractors that are like completely on the money <laughs> right. right yeah this was your first time reading any enders thing any anything right drew yeah i somehow managed to not actually read enders game when i was in school and then as i was reading it i was like oh i somehow i know this like in the same way that i knew oliver twist or like greek myths they just sort of like filtered into my consciousness um but it's so it's so weird that this that Ender's Game got and has like successfully and continually been pitched as a YA story that like it's mm-hmm. taught to high schoolers in a way that you give a high schooler Speaker for the Dead and it's like look out man yeah I, I think it's like I think sixteen and up like and I think honestly younger now because I think that like kids have been forced to become more sophisticated more quickly totally um than we ever were because again like i uh i just remember reading all these like great american novels when i was in high school and just like you know eyes glazed over um whereas if i you know whenever you're kind of like put through this trial by fire that is social media (laughs) you know you're not allowed to be wrong anymore you're not allowed to like have low reading comprehension um and sometimes like these kids on twitter like these 17 year olds will just be like having these like on my level discussions and i'm like good god i was such a moron when i was your age (laughs) 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 like so I, don't, I think like maybe now, uh, like you could, you know, I, I, I think, I don't know. I really genuinely do think that like some asterisk 
or kids are smarter now and way more pop culture literate than we were when we were that age. But yeah, yeah, it's, it it is kind of what, because that was another reason why, like, um, I didn't, like, there was like this super early on, Christopher and I were having this discussion of like, do we want to go YA or adult? And I was like, adult, 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 hard. Like, I'd, we get, like I'll make it weird. I'll add tentacles, whatever you want. Like, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I don't want to go YA because, like, it's, like, I, this is this is a thing that it's, like, even kind of controversial to admit, but it is really restrictive. It hamstrings you. It hamstrings what you're allowed to do. Totally. And that's what kind of bugs me about, like, the way Ender's Game has been marketed in later years is, like, the first one is YA and the rest is whatever. And it's like, no, it's all one, it's all one, it's all one thing. Right. It's all one squirrely thing. Because, <laughs> like, I don't know if you, have you guys read the, the other two, Xenocide and... Uh, those I have I didn't Mm-mm. return to them. Um, it gets weird, um, and I mean that with all love. Uh, it gets really squirrely. Um, like Valentine kind of becomes more of a fetish object. Um, uh, they, they, there's like clones. Uh, Peter comes back, but he's a computer sort of. It's like it gets really uh. weird. But I kind of like I wanted the option to do that. I wanted. I was like, I want to have the door open to get as weird as Orson Scott Card got with <laughs> <laughs> Children of the Mind. <laughs> Yeah, I just I want that option open to me. <laughs> I'm not saying I'll do it, but if I was in YA, I could not have like computer Valentine and um, a you know an AI that can thank you across the universe and all sorts of fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I mean I love the Ansible too. Just like mm-hmm. that that as a concept is so cool. I totally stole it. One thousand percent. Oh, there's that saying, you know, something, yeah. something artist. I just didn't you know. call it an Ansible. I don't think like my version doesn't have a name, but it's the exact same thing. <laughs> I mean, I love that that as a concept, like it has it has suffused pop culture, particularly sci-fi, in a way that at this point you almost there's almost nothing to cite. Because, like, Ursula Le Guin did it, Scott Card did it, everybody, and then it was just like, oh, that's a just a great name. It's like a, a... Oh, are we allowed to use Ansible now? <laughs> can I just, can you know I just what I mean? say It Ansible? feels like how people say Kleenex when they mean tissue. Yeah, yeah, like spandex. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that. I like, yeah, because Ender's Game does get name dropped in the first one. Maybe we should just use Ansible. Like, okay, so that's in the vernacular. Good. It's like Grok. I, can, I, almost, I almost wanted to use Grok, and I'm like, uh... It's one of my one of my favorite Twitter threads of yours is this like looking for the um the the words that you can't use in 2008. Oh yeah, yeah, my my uh, neologisms thread. Yeah. People are such jerks about it, but uh, <laughs> it is it is kind of funny where it's just like even even some of the stuff that is still in uh, the current draft of the second book where um uh I I'll go through it and like some of the dialogue um just doesn't either it's a pop culture reference or it's a word we weren't using back then like you know white people weren't saying bougie um (laughs) the word selfie didn't exist yet uh uh yeah that's so weird (laughs) i've always hated the word selfie i just want that out yeah just to think there was a time (laughs) there was a time before self what a beautiful time what a beautiful time (laughs) 
transitions are hard, hard. hitting Tran- questions. <laughs> the, the transitions are difficult. Uh, we should uh, we should move to recommendations. Uh, this is a um, Speak for the Dead is a strange book to return to. I don't know if I actually recommend going back to it in the same way that um, I recommend wholeheartedly reading Axiom's End. But yeah, so let's talk about things we recommend. You start. Uh, me? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to recommend um, like a comfort book that I read uh, and my dog tried to eat it. <laughs> Didn't know that my dog liked to eat books, but she does. Um, it's a phase. It's uh, this book, Lee, Luke Geddes, uh, this book, Heart of Junk. And it's a set in a um, Midwest um, antiques collectibles mall, the type of thing where everyone has little um, booths. Mm-hmm. And you follow a bunch of characters um, as they lead up to sort of like an American Pickers type show is going to stop by the um, the antique mall. And everyone's like, oh, they're going to have to stop by my booth. I have the coolest thing. There's this character in it that I just absolutely loved. Her name is Dolores. And she is a diehard Barbie collector, has every Barbie. Um, I relate to that. And... Uh, <laughs> And they all speak to her as like a collective hive mind, um, you know, as she's like about to take a donut from a, a display. They're like, you, you know, see all my um, my star screams, right? Yeah, there, there you go. The wall of star screams. <laughs> I love the wall of star screams. Um, yeah, do they speak funny. to you as a as a collective? Yes, they tell me uh, one day I will be the leader of the Decepticons. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, uh, it was the other side of the plot is there's a missing girl. Um, she's like five years old and missing and they might cancel the um the taping of the show because it's too sad to feature this hometown um so they need so everybody in the mall is very very working hard to find her um it's a really really sweet book great picture of the midwest and um all of the key characters are really fun there's also two like a a gay couple that are like grizzled punks um and and i love their where they are in their relationship it's really fun i mean it's not fun for them, but it's fun to read. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, Heart of Junk. Uh, Drew, do you want to go? Sure. Um, I dragged out the reading experience of this book because I did not want it to end. A short story collection by Ryan Amilcar Scott called The World Doesn't Require You. Uh, it's. It turns out it's his second collection. His first came out from a university press it's called Insurrections, but both of them are set in this fictional town that he has created, Cross River, Maryland, the site of the only successful slave revolt in the country. Mm. And there's like there's just mythology. The the this story collection moves from talking about the birth of sort of a an avant jazz movement that comes out of this town uh jumping forward into like the near future where servant robots are created who then get too much intelligence they don't quite become 
uh, fully self-aware, but they get too much intelligence, realize that they have become slaves and try to overthrow the humans. Um, But it ends with this novella called Special Topics in Loneliness Studies. It's about 150 pages that I just, I consumed in a single glorious sitting on my fire escape couple of hours. And it was just, it was a perfect novella inside of a tremendous collection. I just, it's one of those books that I wish could have been two times as long. And I'm excited to go try to find insurrections because then I can read more stories set in this town. I just loved it. Cool. Lindsay, how about you? Um, well, I guess I got a couple. Um, <clears throat> uh, let's see. I guess the first is if you are, if you enjoyed Axiom's End, but you want something that goes way harder and weirder, uh, you should check out um, Lilith's Brood by Octavia E. Butler. <laughs> it's got tentacles. It's got genetic engineering. It's got uh, consent issues. It's got everything. Um and uh, I, I thought of that whenever you mentioned, like, uh, you know, not wanting to um, r- run out of a certain author's uh, work, because I like I, I also discovered Octavia E. Butler when I was in my 20s. And I remember being like shook to find out that she died in 2005. Yeah. And so uh, that like considerably slowed my like consumption of her work. Uh, because I'm like, well, I'm going to run out. Um, so, like, at this point, I've read most of it. And I think, like, Lilith's Brood is, like, kind of controversial. And I think it's only going to become more controversial because the, you know, it is wild. And the consent <laughs> issues are very squirrely. But, like, I don't know. I feel like we need to make more room for that. I mm-hmm. think, you know, I, there's this trend in fiction, but in SFF in particular, where people are kind of, like, shying away from depicting um morally iffy or ethically iffy stuff and uh uh i i just kind of i feel like there should be room for that for things that make us uncomfortable um where the answers are not like super clear mm-hmm. um but on a less squirrely note uh my favorite book that i read last year was uh spinning silver by naomi novik and it's uh it's kind of a rumpelstiltskin retelling kind of kind of sort of um and um I don't know. It's like fantasy, which is not normally my bag, but like, yeah, it was just like extremely well done, extremely well constructed, and like far and away my favorite book I read last year. So, wow, cool. yeah. I have that sitting on my shelf. I loved Uprooted. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't. I I have to bump this up my stack now. Yeah, yeah it's it's good content. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on so many damn books we really appreciate it yeah and thank thank you you. for your book and thank you for uh representing me and for (laughs) driving that mini lambo and for putting up with my bad trip where creed is playing eternally oh god that it's it's just it's so sad It's, (laughs) (laughs) it's so perfect because he'll like he'll text me like some good news and i'm just like but have you considered There's a bad side to this good news. I won't consider it, damn it. (laughs) Can you take me? (laughs) Uh, People who are listening, please, um, number one, go by Axiom's End. Number two... Um, I think we've done a really good of selling this book that we have <laughs> talked basically nothing about and <laughs> said nothing about the contents. 
<laughs> people people will get it. They'll get it once they yeah. read it. They'll, they'll listen read to it again. They'll read between the lines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they'll read it. They'll come back and be like, that's what they were talking about. <laughs> yeah, no, see, that is like my, like, I'm super bummed about having to do a virtual tour, but I feel like that is my one like silver lining is I'm not gonna have to read shit. I'm just <laughs> I can just shit post my way through the whole thing and I don't have to read anything. Oh yeah, what would you stand up and read? I would read from Awoken because uh, it's got some good shit in it. It's way funnier. I think it's much more of a crowd pleaser. Like there's a scene where like, you know, Cthulhu in the form of a hot teenage boy tells the protagonist that he can't take her to the pumpkin ball. It's great. Uh, well, well, people at home. <laughs> Pick up Awoken. It's by Sarah L. Ellenson. That's S-E-R-R-A. Oh, Yeah. Do that too. Uh, we'll have links to everything, that, um, all the books on our website, so mediadambooks.com that we mentioned. Um, also, we love iTunes reviews if they're nice. And you can go to our Patreon if you want to pay us for this content <laughs> that we That's give you content. for free. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, thanks again for coming on, Lindsay. Yeah, thanks. Thank you.